Welcome to Reading to Kids podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Peyton. And we're here to read to you or with you. We know that sometimes moms and dads don't always have the time or the motivation to read to their kids each night, and we know how important it is. So, on those nights that you're not in the mood, we're going to do it for you. Can't wait to read with you. Good job, Peyton. High five. A series of unfortunate events. Book the fifth, The Oster Academy, Chapter 5. Do you remember where we left off? Skinny Count Olaf, gym teacher. Oh, and he was like, I'd love to see the orphans. Oh, yeah, orphans have they great... Sing, they sing, um, something about a dead horse. Oh, I, we haven't gotten there yet, but... but yeah. Sorry, spoiler. Ooh, that's scary. Okay, ready? Ah, geez Louise. Okay, the expression following suit is a curious one because it has nothing to do with walking behind a matching set of clothing. If you follow suit, it means you do the same thing somebody else has just done. If all of your friends decided to jump off of a bridge into the icy waters of an ocean river, for instance, and you jumped in right after them, you would be following suit. And you can see why following suit can be a very dangerous thing to do. Because you could end up drowning simply because everybody else thought of it first. This is why when Violet stood up from the hay and said, how do you do, Coach Genghis? Klaus and Sunny were reluctant to follow suit. It was an inconceivable. It was inconceivable to the younger Baudelaire's that their sister had not recognized Count Olaf and that she had not leapt to her feet in, to inform Vice Principal Nero what was going on. For a moment, Klaus and Sunny even considered that Violet may have been hypnotized. As, Cly- as Klaus had been back when the Baudelaire orphans were living in Paltryville. But Violet's eyes did not look wider than they normally did, nor did she say, How do you do, Coach Genghis, in a dazed tone of voice that Klaus had used when he had been under hypnosis. But although they were puzzled, the younger Baudelaire's trusted their sister absolutely. She had managed to avoid marrying Count Olaf when it seemed like it would be inevitable. A word here which means a lifetime of horror and woe. She made a a lockpick when they needed one in a hurry, and she had used her inventing skills to help them escape from some of the very hungry leeches. So, even though they could not think of a reason... What the reason was, Klaus and Sunny knew that Violet must have had a good reason to greet Count Olaf politely, rather than reveal him con- instantly, and so, after a pause, they followed suit. How do you do, Co- Coach Genghis? Klaus said. Giffy to go, Sunny shrieked. It's a pleasure to meet you, Coach Genghis said and smirked. The Baudelaire's could tell that he had fooled them completely, and he was very pleased with himself. What do you think, Coach Coach Genghis? Vice Principal Nero asked. Do any of these orphans have the legs you're looking for? Coach Genghis scratched his turban and looked down at the children as if they were an all-you-can-eat salad bar instead of five orphans. Oh, yes, he said in a wheezy voice because the the two of the triplets were there. The Baudelaire still heard in their nightmares. 
With his bony hands, he pointed first at Violet, then at Klaus, and lastly at Sunny. These three children here are just what I'm looking for, all right. I have no uses for these twins, however. Neither do I, Nero said, not bothering to point out that the quagmires were triplets. He then looked at his watch. Well, it's time for my concert. Follow me to the auditorium, all of you, unless you're in the mood to buy me a bag of candy. The Baudelaire orphans hoped to never buy their vice principal a gift of any sort, let alone a bag of candy, which the children loved and hadn't eaten in a very long time. So they followed out, followed Nero out of the orphan shack and across the lawn to the auditorium. The quagmires followed suit, staring up at the gravestone buildings, which looked even spookier in the moonlight. Not this evening, Nero said, I will be playing, oh, this evening, Nero said, I will be playing a violin sonata I wrote myself. It only lasts about an hour and a half, but I will pay, play it 12 times in a row. Oh my gosh. Oh, good, Coach Gingas said. Oh, he said a half hour, not an hour and a half. If I may say so, Vice Principal Nero, I am an enormous fan of your music. Your concerts were one of the main reasons I wanted to work here at Proof Rock Prep. Well, it's good to hear that, Nero said. It's difficult to find people who appreciate me as the genius I am. I know the feeling, Coach Genghis said. I am the finest gym teacher the world has ever seen. Yet, there hasn't been one parade in my honor. Shocking, Nero said, shaking his head. The Baudelaire's and the Quagmire's, who were walking behind the adults, looked at one another in disgust at the braggy conversation they were overhearing, but didn't dare to speak to one another until they had arrived at the auditorium, taking a seat as far away as possible from Carmelita Spatz and her loathsome friends. There is one... And only one advantage of somebody who cannot play the violin, insisting on doing so anyway. And the advantage of that, advantage of that is that they, they often play so loudly that they cannot hear the audience if they're having a conversation. It is extremely rude, of course, for an audience to talk during a concert performance. But when, this, when the performance has a wretched one, it lasts six hours such rudeness can be forgiven. So it was that evening after an, after introducing himself with a brief braggy speech, Vice Principal Nero, Nero stood on the stage of the auditorium and began playing from his sonata for the first time. When you listen to a piece of classical music, it is often amusing to try and guess what inspired the composer to write those particular notes. Sometimes a composer will be inspired by nature and will write all a symphony, write a symphony imitating the sounds of birds and trees. Other times a composer will be inspired by the city and will write a concerto. Ooh, what is that? Im imitating the sound of a traffic and sidewalks. In the case of a sonata, Nero had apparently been inspired by somebody beating up a cat because the music was loud and screechy and made it quite easy to talk during the performance. As Nero sawed away at his violin, the students of Prue Frock Prep began to talk amongst themselves. The Baudelaire's even noticed that Mr. Romero, 
Ramora and Mrs. Bass, who were sub- Bass or Bass? Pagan. Is it Miss Bass or Miss Bass? Miss Bass. Miss Bass. Who were supposed to be figuring out which students owned Nero a bag of candy, giggling and sharing a banana in the back row. Only Coach Gingas, who was sitting in the center of the fairy front row, seemed to be paying any attention to the music. Our new gym teacher looks creepy, Isadora said. That's for sure, Duncan agreed. It's that sneaky look in his eye. That sneaky look, said Violet, taking a sneaky taking a sneaky look herself to make sure Coach Gingas wasn't listening in. It's because he's not really Coach Gingas. He's not a real coach at all. He's Count Olaf in disguise. I knew you recognized him, Klaus said. Count Olaf, Duncan said. How awful. How did you guys, how did he follow you here? Stuok, Sunny said gloomily. My sister means something like he follows us everywhere, Violet explained, and she's right. But it doesn't matter how he found us. The point is that he's here, and he's undoubtedly ha- he undoubtedly has a scheme to snatch our fortune. But why did you pretend not to recognize him, Klaus said. Yes, Isadora said. If you told Vice Principal Nero that he was really Count Olaf, then Nero could throw the cake sniffer out of here, if you pardon my language. Violet shook her head to indicate that she disagreed with Isadora and that she didn't mind that she didn't mind about cake sniffer. Olaf's too clever for that, she said. I knew if I tried to tell Nero that he wasn't really a gym teacher, he would manage to wiggle out of it just as he did with Aunt Josephine and Uncle Monty and everyone else. Oh, that's good thinking, Klaus admitted. Plus, if Count Olaf thinks that he's fooled us, it might give us some more time to figure out exactly what he's up to. Alert, Sonny pointed out. My sister means that we can see if any of his assistants are around, Violet translated. Oh, that's a good point, Sonny. I hadn't even thought of that. Count Olaf has assistants? Isadora asked. That's not fair. He's bad enough without people helping him. His assistants are as bad as he is, Klaus said. There are two powder-faced women who forced us to be in his play. There's a hook-handed man who helped Count Olaf murder our Uncle Monty, and the bald man who's bossed us around at the lumber bill. Don't forget him, <sighs> Violet added. Agonist, Sonny said, which means something like, and the assistant that looks like neither a man nor a woman. What does agonist mean, Duncan asked, checking his notebook. I'm going to write that down with all of these details about Count Olaf and his troop. Why? Violet asked. Why? said Isadora. Because we're going to help you. That's why. You don't think we'd just sit here while you tried to escape from Count Olaf's clutches, do you? But if Count, but Count Olaf is dangerous, Klaus said. If you try and help us, you'll be risking your lives. Never mind about that, Duncan said. Although, I'm sorry to tell you that the Quagmire triplets should have minded about that. They should have minded very much. Duncan and Isadora were brave and caring to try and help the Baudelaire orphans, but bravery often demands a price. By price, I do not mean something along the line of $5. I mean a much bigger price, a price so dreadful I cannot speak of it now, but it must return, but I must return to the scene that I am writing this instant. Never mind about that, Duncan said. What we need is a plan. Now, we need to prove to Nero that Coach Gingus is really Count Olaf. How can we do that? Well, Nero has that computer, Violet said thoughtfully. 
He showed us a little picture of Count Olaf on the screen, remember? Yes, Klaus said, shaking his head. He told us that the advanced computer system would keep Count Olaf away. So much for computers. Sunny nodded her, he nodded her head in agreement, and Violet picked her up and put her on her lap. Nero had reached a particularly squeaky section of his sonata, and the children had to lean forward to one another to continue their conversation. If we go in and see Nero first thing tomorrow morning, Violet said, we can talk to him alone without, without Olaf butting in. We'll ask him to use the computer. Nero might not believe us, but the computer should be able to convince him to, to at least investigate Coach Genghis. Maybe Nero will, will make blah, blah. maybe Nero will make him take off the turban, Isadora said, revealing Count Olaf's only one eyebrow. Or take off those expensive running shoes, Klaus said, revealing Olaf's tattoo. But but if you talk to Nero, Duncan said, then Coach Genghis will know that you're suspicious. That's why we have to be extra careful, Violet said. We want Nero to find out about Olaf without Olaf finding out about us. And in the meantime, Duncan said, Isadora and I have some investigating of our own to do. Perhaps we can spot one of these assistants you've described. That would be very useful, Violet said, if you're sure about wanting to help us. Say no more about it, Duncan said, and patted Violet's hand, and they said no more about it. They didn't say another word about Count Olaf for the rest of Nero's sonata, or while he performed the second time or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth, or, or even the sixth time, by which it was very, very late at night. The Baudelaire orphans and the Quagmire triplets merely sat in a, com in a companionable comfort, and a phrase here which means as many things, all of them happy, even when it is quite difficult to be happy while hearing a terrible sonata performed over and over again by a man who cannot play the violin while attending an atrocious boarding school with an evil man sitting undoubtedly nearby, planning something dreadful. But happy moments came, come, came rarely and unexpectedly in the Baudelaire's lives, and the three siblings had learned to accept them. Duncan had his hand on, Violet, on Violet's and talked to her about terrible concerts that he had attended back when the Quagmire's parents were alive, and she was happy to hear his stories. Isadora began working on a poem about libraries and showed Klaus that she, what she had written in her notebook, and Klaus was so happy to offer suggestions. As, and Sunny snuggled down towards Violet's lap and chewed on the armrest of her seat, happy to bite something that was so sturdy. I'm sure you would know, even if I didn't tell you, that things were about to get much worse for the Baudelaire's. But... I will end this chapter with this moment of companionable, companionable comfort rather than skip ahead to the unpleasant events of the next morning or the terrible trials of the days that followed or the horrific crime that marked the end of the Baudelaire's time at Proofrock Prep. These things happened, of course, and there is no pretending that they didn't. But for now, let us ignore the terrible sonata, the dreadful teachers, the nasty, teasing students, and even more wretched things that would be happening soon enough. Let us enjoy this brief moment of comfort, as the Baudelaire's enjoyed it in the company of the Quagmire triplets, and, in Sunny's case, an armrest, oh, an armrest, because she's eating it and chewing it. Yeah.
Let us enjoy, at the end of this chapter, the last happy moment that many of these children would have for a long, long time. These poor kids, huh? They need to find good parents.